0: This is the Thorn Podcast, the show that navigates the complex world of wellness and explores the latest science behind diet, supplements, and lifestyle approaches to good health. I'm Dr. Robert Roundtree, Chief Medical Advisor at Thorne and Functional Medicine Doctor. And I'm Dr. Frank Lipman,
1: New York Times bestseller and Functional Medicine Doctor. As a reminder, the recommendations made in this podcast are the recommendations of the individuals who express them and not the recommendations of Thorne. Statements in this podcast have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration.
0: Any products mentioned are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease.
1: Hi, everybody. Hi, Bob. This is the Thorne podcast. And today we're going to talk about a couple of interesting topics. But first of all, how are you doing, Bob?
0: I'm actually pretty good. I've been a little bit chilled this week, as as I think everyone else in the country, it seems like the United States is in a bit of an icebox. Yep. Hopefully by the time this podcast gets out, things will have warmed up a bit.
1: Ugh. I hope so. I mean, the, the good thing is what I like about winter. It's real turning in, doing stuff inside. You know, I've actually been doing a lot of podcasts. And, you know, what I find interesting, Bob, you probably feel the same way. You know, when you do, I do these podcasts with relatively newcomers to the wellness world. And, you know, when we started with well, 30, 40 years ago, it was so alternative or so different or unusual or we were really so not mainstream. So interesting to see what's happened that, you know, what we've been talking about for so long, people are starting to get with such enthusiasm. I just find it so interesting, and especially the younger audience, not so much the, the 60, you know, the old farts like us, but, you know, the 20s, 30s and 40s are so into what we're doing. And I find it quite fascinating that in the old days, it was, trying to explain and convince people about certain concepts now people get it people know what you're talking about it's the sort of you they want you to take them to another level
0: I agree I think instead of trying to convince people that they may have leaky gut now I have patients asking me what the best treatments for leaky gut and you know, wanting to know how much glutamine should I take? Exactly. And what's the right kind of probiotic? So people are more focused on fine-tuning than they are in the basic concepts. So the basic concepts are now being accepted in the mainstream. Uh, so much so that a lot of the local doctors here, the internists and family doctors, now they're all saying, well, yeah, I do integrative medicine. I'm not sure what that means. It means they tell people to take vitamin C, Right, but suddenly everybody's getting on the van wagon. Right, no, no, it's,
1: yeah, I no, I agree 100%. You know, who who says they're doing integrative medicine or what integrative medicine is. But you're you know, to your point, what I find fascinating is the questions that I'm getting and the type of patients that I'm seeing are so much more sophisticated and I want you to take yep. them to a whole nother level. It's not, will a probiotic help me? It's how do you know that this particular probiotic is right for me, or how do you know I have leaky gut and what can I do about it? Yep. which is quite fascinating. And the good thing for for us is it also keeps us on on our toes. You know, in, in the old days, it was like pretty standard. You know, we, we weren't really expected to know that much, except it was a little bit different. So it's good for us because we have to be cognizant of what's going on around there and keep trying to integrate what's happening in this new world and it's great for patients because they can start at a much higher baseline.
0: Well I was just yesterday having a discussion with a patient who's got what looks like the early form of rheumatoid arthritis and she said should I, should I see a rheumatologist? And I said, well, here's what you're going to hear from the rheumatologist. A, that diet has nothing to do with this disease. Right. And I said, you know, that's, I'm sorry, but that's just based on ignorance of the medical literature. Cause there are many, many published studies showing that diet affects the course of inflammatory arthritis. So you're going to hear that diets irrelevant, that supplements don't do anything at all. And that you should start from the very beginning with the strongest possible drugs that you can. And I said, I'm not standing in the way of that if that's what you want to do, but that's what's going to happen.
1: Yep, and that's what I see all the time. I mean, I have had so many young women come in with their mothers who have some autoimmune disease. Folks have taken them to a rheumatologist who's recommended, you know, one of these biologics, a strong drug. And the kid comes in with their mother and tells me the story. And we go through the story and say, and I say to them, yes, you, you probably had too many antibiotics when you were younger. Uh, you then created a problem in your microbiome. You now have leaky gut and that would then you know, cause you to make antibodies. And that's what the problem is. And they, they look at their mothers, Ma, I told you so. That's what I told you. You didn't believe me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and here's this guy right in front of us that's saying the same thing.
1: Yeah, so yeah. It's, it's really good. Anyway, let's sort of, this is quite relevant to our yeah. topic today. So let's yeah. get into our main topic this week, inflammation, yeah. because this is one of those terms that 20 years ago, traditional doctors didn't really talk much about. Now, inflammation has definitely permeated the culture, and everyone sort of knows about inflammation, although I think there are a lot of misperceptions About inflammation, because you know what the 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 negative part of what we're talking about of this all this information out there is, you know, you'll see blogs on seven foods to help inflammation or what you can do for inflammation, and I find a lot of it is actually nonsense. Yeah, my feeling on inflammation is. The commonest and most important cause of inflammation is a leaky gut and an imbalanced microbiome. And if you don't address that, it's very difficult to deal with the inflammation. So let's. So why don't we first sort of differentiate what acute inflammation is and chronic inflammation is, and then tell me what your sense of chronic inflammation is, and then we'll just go back and forth from there.
0: Well, I think first of all, to be human is to know what inflammation looks like. You know, you get a cut. Or you sprain your ankle and you see the classic findings, which are redness, swelling, heat, warmth, and pain. And the interesting thing is that that phenomena, that set of characteristics, are actually one of the oldest described set of characteristics in medicine. I mean, this goes back to writings of the ancient Egyptians. The early Egyptian doctors knew about this thousands of years ago, wrote about it. So we've known that there's this consistent pattern, Uh, but it really wasn't until fairly recently in the history of things that we knew what the chemistry of that was. That kind of started with the discovery of how aspirin works. So, you know, aspirin has been used for a long, long time, and all it was known is that it lowered fever, decreased pain. But when they finally discovered the biochemical pathways, which I don't, I don't think we need to go into here, but they discovered that aspirin blocks a step in those biochemical pathways, and that led to this whole door opening to looking at all these other biochemical pathways and how they work, etc. Now, most of those pathways were thought to be involved in what we call acute inflammation, right, which is the result of a cut or a sprain etc. We know what that looks like, the redness, swelling, heat, pain. But what about chronic inflammation? And that's where the rub comes in. Acute inflammation is generally a good thing. It's part of the body's defense and repair mechanisms, right? So the body's fighting off an infection or repairing from an injury. And that's when you get all these different phenomena I was describing, the redness and swelling, etc. But what if that doesn't turn off? What if a person smokes a cigarette and they get inflammation in their lungs that starts acutely, but then they smoke another cigarette, and then you activate the same pathways? Now, these are the same biochemical pathways that aspirin is involved in stopping, right? It's the same phenomenon whether you're talking about a cut or sprain or a biochemical injury from burning organic material or a toxin in the environment, or for people that are allergic to bee stings, it's the same thing. And it's really gotten clear that chronic inflammation is is at the cause of almost any long-term disease that you can think of, whether it's heart disease, Alzheimer's disease, multiple sclerosis, you name it, chronic inflammation is at the core of it. Now, that doesn't mean you could treat all those diseases with aspirin because there's slight variations in the pathways involved, but it does mean that you can approach them in a very similar way. And that approach for docs like us is to get at what is perpetuating the inflammation, is to find out what's driving it. And as you said, leaky gut is often at the core of it. And that's because the gut is where the body is interacting with the outside world. I mean, we're eating. In the course of a lifetime, tons of food, and some of that food isn't good for you. And some of the bacteria in your gut are not good for you. And if the gut is leaky, those bacteria leak into the bloodstream, and the immune system thinks it's under attack, and it initiates this inflammatory response pattern that we're talking about.
1: Right, and I think what people sort of misunderstand, or, or, or put it this way, it hasn't really permeated the culture like just the concept of inflammation yet how important those bugs in your gut are to inflammation you know you can simplify and saying you have pro-inflammatory bugs and anti-inflammatory bugs because you by manipulating your gut you can actually affect the inflammation but you know what i find fascinating is you know inflammation is so common in so many yeah. you know so many patients come in you know they have pain in their hand, just some type of what they perceive as inflammation in different areas of their body. And the first thing they do is take an anti-inflammatory, a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory like Motrin or Advil because, you know, like any normal person or abnormal person who watches TV, um, you see it on TV all the time that Advil or Motrin or whatever crap that they're promoting gets to the source of the inflammation. So it's just sort of a normal response for someone to take Advil if they have inflammation. Unfortunately, when you take these drugs for longer periods in maybe even two weeks, that makes this leaky gut a little bit worse. So it sort of adds to the problem and I've seen that over and over
0: again. One of the main causes of leaky gut is the non anti-inflammatory drugs. The other one is alcohol. Yep. Here you have somebody who's in a lot of pain and then maybe they take a shot of booze to relieve their pain, but they're actually contributing to the pain in the long run. So, you know, they got a little bit of arthritis. And they say, well, if I just have a little shot of whiskey, maybe that'll make the pain more tolerable. But actually, the pain gets worse the next day. Yep. And ibuprofen is doing the same thing. It's wearing down the gut lining.
1: And the other sad state of affairs, you know, and it's you know, we as older physicians sort of are part of that generation of doctors who are trained to give a pill for every ill and the the two common medications that are so overused still in antibiotics which are still i think overused antibiotics create a you know an imbalance in the microbiome which is then going to create a problem with the intestinal lining and create a a leaky gut and the other drug that's overused is our proton pump inhibitors you know the nexiums and the prilosex Oh, my God. Both those categories of drugs are so overused. And, and antibiotics, I think people realize that they carpet bomb the gut and create a problem. But I don't think people realize the problems of long-term proton pump inhibitor use. And I I see this all the time now. This, this patients who've been on these proton pump inhibitors for years and years and years, and they come in and they've got many problems, but one of them is an altered microbiome and leaky gut and the consequences thereof. Is that your experience too? Yeah,
0: absolutely. I just had a patient the other day with whom I had this long conversation, exactly what we're talking about. She was having some upset stomach, a little bit of heartburn, et cetera. She went to see a gastroenterologist. He put a scope down he said, well, your stomach's a little bit red. We call that gastritis. You have mild gastritis. So here, I want you to take Protonix, which is a proton pump inhibitor. And you know, you can take it for a couple of months and it'll solve your problem. And the first thing I told her was, I think this mild gastritis is such a common diagnosis that it's almost routine. And the whole idea of using a proton pump inhibitor to treat gastritis doesn't make any sense. Now, notice... Itis. We said itis. Whenever you say itis, you mean inflammation. Good point. Right? So they're treating what they complain to be as an itis of the stomach with something that inhibits all stomach acid, which is critical for absorption of nutrients and critical for maintaining the right balance of bacteria in the gut. So just like with the non anti-inflammatory drugs, the PPIs, the proton pump inhibitors, contribute to these problems in the long run. The problem with this patient, she took the proton pump inhibitor. She said, I feel better. I feel better. Why shouldn't I keep taking this? And I said, well, because you're not going to be able to stop taking it. You're going to be getting dependent on it. Exactly the same thing that happens with a person that's got arthritis. They take uh, naproxen or ibuprofen and they say, oh, I feel so much better. But then they don't realize if they're tracking this over time, Gradually, their symptoms are just going to get worse and worse and worse. And this
1: is what I think all of us see all of the time. And it's it's really tragic. This is medically induced problems. You know, when I see these young women who have autoimmune diseases and it's epidemic. Yeah, it's an epidemic. Or, or epidemic in my practice anyway. I'd say at least 80% of them have been antibiotic induced. Almost all of them have had antibiotics for months or years for acne, chronic sinusitis, uh, tonsillitis, ureteral infections, whatever it is, they've just had recurrent antibiotic use, which has then caused the microbiome imbalance, which has then caused the inflammation and in the leaky gut and created these autoimmune problems. Yep. So I, I think it's a, it's a big problem. And, and as you mentioned there, the PPIs, I know we're jumping around here, folks, but that's it is what it is. The PPIs are very difficult to get off. When you yeah. stop, when you've been on Nexium or Protonix for a couple of months, even just a couple of months, and you try to stop it, you get a rebound effect. You can't do it. Yeah. You can't do it.
0: You can't stop.
1: So, you know, I take weeks and weeks to taper people off these drugs. And you know, and I use mastic gum and zinc carnosine and DG, you know, deglucinated licorice. Glutamine. You know, I used a whole host of things and changed people's diet, but I do it over months. I mean, that's it can be very difficult to stop those drugs. You can't just stop them. You have to taper off them slowly.
0: So the big issue here is that when you jump to using a drug like a proton pump inhibitor, non anti-inflammatory drug, it's basically trying to stop symptoms, and it's not asking the question, why? Exactly. Why did this happen in the first place? Why is the inflammation going on? You know, we could apply that in just about every chronic condition, chronic inflammatory bowel disease, which includes Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis. Why is the body responding with this inflammatory pattern. And the first thing I tell patients is, well, the body's trying to do something that it thinks is the right thing, right? Inflammation is about defense and repair. So the body's just responding in a way that it thinks is appropriate. The immune system is trying to do something. You have to ask, is there something the immune system is getting exposed to that exposure needs to be removed or is the immune system missing something? You know that's that comes from my old friend Sid Baker, who I, I know you know Sid. Right. He says that's that all of medicine can boil down to: what does the body need to get, and what does it need to avoid? Yep. Get and avoid. And I, I sometimes,
1: you know, sometimes explain inflammation. I know it's not a direct correlation to sort of like stress. You know, the fight or flight system. You know, if, if you in the jungle, and the lion attacks you. Go back to my South African days. Not that that ever happens. Or you're in traffic. And
0: how often did that happen to you? <laughs>
1: you know, you need you need that stress response. <laughs> you need that stress response acutely, but chronic stress when that stress response you know doesn't recede and go back to normal, and you've got chronic stress, that becomes a problem. And the, you know, this is what happens with inflammation. Acute inflammation. Is good. It's helpful. You need yes. that. You're, that's a good response of your body. But if you if you don't take away what's causing that inflammation and you develop chronic inflammation, that becomes a problem.
0: I could say we could apply this to COVID. Yep. That to fight off that virus, you yep. need to activate inflammation. Yep. You know. So the people that have mild symptoms, that means their immune system is working. And if that doesn't happen in the beginning, the virus starts replicating to the level where it overwhelms immune system and that causes excessive inflammation.
1: Let's take a short break now and when we get back, we're going to answer some questions. Want to stay up to date on the latest nutritional and wellness news? Then head over to Thorn.com and visit Take5Daily to sign up to have free wellness content delivered directly to your inbox. You'll get access to news, videos, and other expert insights covering everything from immune health, diet, and lifestyle advice, and the latest wellness research in an easy-to-digest format. Visit Thorn.com to learn more. That's T-H-O-R-N-E dot Okay, folks, we're back, and now it's time to answer some questions from the community. Our first question this week comes from a listener who asks, okay, Bob, question is, we sort of dealt with it, but I think we, we should deal with it a little bit more. question is, is inflammation ever a good
0: thing? Yeah, in fact, I'd say it's mostly a good thing. You could not live without inflammation. Otherwise, you literally could die from a paper cut, right? So you need inflammation to defend from foreign invaders, mostly microbial invaders, and you need it to repair from wounds. So that's what the job of inflammation is. The problem comes in when it doesn't shut off. So the immune system has built in mechanisms to turn off inflammation that get activated whenever you turn it on. So from the very beginning of the process, there are chemicals being released that are shutoff valves. And the problem is when you don't have enough shutoff valve, what are some of the causes of not having enough Shutoff valves. Well, the balance between the right kinds of fatty acids. And the body play a massive role in that. If a person has got an excessive amount of an inflammatory fatty acid called arachidonic acid, which is found in animal fats, and not enough of the omega-3 fatty acids, the EPA and DHA that you find in fish oil and algae, if you've got an imbalance, and I'm not saying arachidonic acid is inherently bad. It's not bad. It's the balance that's the problem. If you've got too much of that you're more likely to make excessive amounts of inflammatory chemicals when you get exposed to some kind of trigger, right? So some person that, that maybe got a lot of the omega-3 fatty acids in their body already, they get exposed to a yeast that's toxic like candida albicans. They may not react as much. But a person who's got the balance tip towards inflammation, they get a little bit of yeast and, boy, there you go, swelling, pain, itching, all of that. So it's it's a predisposition, really. Is the person predisposed to having excessive amounts of inflammation?
1: And it's something we can measure, actually. There's yes. a blood test that I do as a pretty standard test, omega-3 and omega-6 levels.
0: Yeah, you can get a finger stick. You can order this online yourself. You don't have to go through a doctor to get it. I, I think it's very useful and very valid. So, Frank, uh, here's a question That I think puts together a lot of different issues and fits what we see in our patients. My friend is 25 years old and has arthritis. She's very sore all over. How does someone who is that young have arthritis? She's vegan. She lives very healthily. She's always doing elimination diet. She's cut out gluten. She's cut out alcohol. Could her diet still be causing the problem even when it's this restricted?
1: What a great question, because this is a typical patient I see. I see a patient like this at least one or two a week. You know, as I was saying earlier, these sophisticated young women in particular who come in with, you know, whether it's inflammation, arthritis, autoimmune problems, they often have become vegans or think they're living very healthily. And they've done elimination diets, no gluten, no alcohol, it's as, as, as they ask. And they get somewhat better, but they don't really get better. And this comes down to what we were talking about. If you don't correct the imbalance in the microbiome and treat the leaky gut, yep. then it's very difficult to treat the inflammation. So you always got to look for... The underlying issues of why there's inflammation in the body, and as I always say, and, and what I see in my patients all the time, the commonest cause is an imbalanced microbiome and a, and a subsequent leaky gut. Someone like this, your friend, who's vegan and very healthy, she needs to look at her gut and correct those imbalances. Even if you're eating the perfect diet, and I see so many people eating a really good diet, taken out what we would think of as pro-inflammatory foods, the gluten, maybe red meat, although I don't believe that's pro-inflammatory for a lot of people, but um, dairy, corn, soy, they take out a lot of these foods and they still don't get better. And that's because until you somewhat correct the imbalance in the gut and correct the leaky gut or uh, try to fix the leaky gut, you're going to have arthritic pains and inflammation all over the body. So the bottom line would be to treat this sort of pattern of microbiome imbalance and leaky gut.
0: Yep. I, I totally agree. Often in a case like this, I might do a gut microbiome test. Yep. I know, you know, sometimes that can be complicated to interpret, but just in case something comes up, what I often tell patients like this, and I do see quite a few myself, is that the seeds of this problem probably began early in life. Yep. You know, so they're saying, well, I've eaten well since high school, but this may have started, the problem may have started during infancy. Yep. And so you've got to go way back to infancy. And Dr. Blazer wrote The Missing Microbes, says every generation of people have fewer microbes than the generation before. So if the child is born by C-section, they're going to start with fewer microbes in their gut, and they're going to be more prone to autoimmune disease and chronic inflammation. So the the first thing I tell this person is it's not your fault, right? It's not something you've done in the last five or 10 years. It probably happened a long time before that, and it's going to take a while to reverse all of this. It's not going to be overnight. Exactly. And as
1: we were talking about earlier, it usually goes back to a history of lots of antibiotics. Not always, because the American diet alone could be a, 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 a major factor. And as you point out, cesarean section births not being breastfed, but it's often made worse or really triggered by long courses or or too many courses of antibiotics. So this is just such a common problem, folks. So here's another question that I get asked all the time. The question is, I've heard that X food or Y food is inflammatory. What does that mean? And what is it inflaming? So, Bob, let's you want to talk about sort of this concept of inflammatory foods and anti-inflammatory foods?
0: And I don't think there's any question that certain foods can activate an immune response. So yeah. the major things that activate the immune response are foods, microbes, toxins, and trauma. That's it. And it's always happening on a molecular basis. In other words, there's some kind of molecular structure that is interacting with the immune system that's causing this. Now, how could a food cause the same kind of response as, say, a microbe? The best example of this is sugar. It's well known that eating sugar, refined carbohydrates, can activate the immune response. And why would that be? On a molecular level, there's two different things that can happen. The sugars have a structure that look like a foreign invader. And so we have immune cells, in particular, a group of immune cells called macrophages that are scavenger cells. So their their job is to clean up the messes around the body. And when they come in contact with these sugars, they basically react to them the same way they would react to exposure to candida albicans or some other toxic yeast. So they get exposed to that molecular structure and it turns them on. And what if you do that day in, day out? So what's the evidence that this is true? A study, very interesting study was done where they gave people a happy meal from McDonald's, right? The hash browns and the egg McMuffin. And then they measured a chemical called NF-kappa B, which is the final common pathway for inflammation in the body. Within an hour or so of eating the Happy Meal, the, this inflammatory chemical, NF-kappa-B, went through the roof, and it stayed up for three or four hours just from eating that food. And they measured it also in people who just drank water, who didn't eat that meal, and it didn't go up in the people who drank water. So it's 100% clear that there are certain foods, and it's usually refined foods, overly processed foods fried foods, fried fats, things like that, that have these molecular structures in them that cause this to happen. So there's, there's no question that this can happen. And in that study of the Happy Meal, the author said, well, what happens if people eat this all the time, right? That means every meal turns on the immune system and creates inflammation. So question for you, Frank, you hear about brain swelling, joint swelling, muscle swelling. Is there any Place in the body, anything in the body that can't be inflamed?
1: I would say probably not. I think you get what happens with inflammation. You get a systemic response. You know, you inflammatory particles are going into the bloodstream, and it can present anywhere. It can It can present in the skin yep. as, let's say, acne. It can present in the lungs as asthma. The heart, uh, you know, you get heart disease, often inflammatory disease, the brain, Alzheimer's. So uh, I think it can present anywhere in the body, anywhere it can get inflamed. You know, bones it can present, bones get o- osteoporosis. That's
0: osteoporosis is inflammation.
1: Yep. yep. So anywhere in the body it can present. But I think we need to finish this podcast off is the question what can i take for my inflammation so i would start off the answer is you always got to look for the source don't just look for a natural version of an anti-inflammatory which i'm all for and we, we can discuss those but always look to see why your body has chronic inflammation always first do that and while you're doing that yes then it's worthwhile introducing some anti-inflammatories. But most important is look for the, the source. So, Bob, do you want to discuss some of the natural ways of treating inflammation?
0: Yeah. I mean, One thing I want to say about the source is that we had that question about somebody who's eating a healthy diet and they're still getting triggered. So when I'm talking to people about eliminating potentially foods that are bad for them, I don't want to say, I almost said bad foods. But right you know, you have people that can react to healthy foods. So the first thing you do is take out the obviously unhealthy foods, the processed foods, etc. cetera. And then the second thing is you have to look to see if that person has a unique inflammatory response to say nuts or eggs or some vegetable that they didn't expect. And the best way to do that is with an elimination diet. You know, it can be really complicated. Sometimes I do blood tests I like a test called the FIT test, the food inflammatory test that is gotten through a finger stick. So people can react to what are otherwise healthy foods. Now, if they've already gone that route, then the next step is to say, well, what supplements can I take? And I would say curcumin phytosome is at the top of my list just because it's such a well-rounded supplement that's got, you know, effects against all kinds of inflammatory pathways, not just one. Inflammatory pathway. Aspirin blocks one inflammatory pathway. Curcumin blocks a whole group of them. So curcumin's at the top of my list. I use a lot of boswellia as well. I use green tea. I sometimes use willow bark extract, saloxacin. You know, that's that's just a few. Uh, devil's claw is a pretty good herb with that. So you can start with the simple ones like curcumin and boswellia and get increasingly. Uh, I almost say esoteric, but things that the public may not have heard of. And then in the long run, the omega-3s are great, but they don't work immediately. They take months to work. So that's the long-term strategy.
1: And once again, most important, treat the leaky gut because there's a good chance that there's a leaky gut and we need to see why there's a leaky gut and treat the leaky gut. So always look for that underlying cause. So it's great to take the curcumin and the fish oils and the Boswellia and the quercetin, but always treat the leaky gut because that's often the issue.
0: I think I'm single-handedly keeping the L-glutamine business going right. <laughs> just by so much of uh, how much of that I prescribe, but it's a, great, it's a great nutrient.
1: Right, me too. Okay, all right, folks, that's all the time we have this week. Thanks for listening, and thanks, Bob, for doing these podcasts together. It's always such a pleasure to just chat to you absolutely thanks for listening to the thorn podcast make sure to never miss an episode by subscribing to the show on your podcast app of choice
0: if you've got a health or wellness question you'd like answered simply follow our instagram and shoot a message to at thorn research you can also learn more about the topics we discussed by visiting Thorn.com and checking out the latest news, videos, and stories on Thorne's Take 5 daily blog. Once again, thanks for tuning in, and don't forget to join
1: us next time for another episode of The Thorn Podcast.